I'd like for us to look together this morning at one of the parables of Jesus, one of the stories that he um, gave to drive home a very specific point to his audience. But I'd like to start in a little bit different way. Um, I have a a book with me by an author who took the parables written in the first century to people who would have heard the story and immediately understood what they were like, and he rewrote the parables for today. And they're written at a high school-level audience. And so what I'd like to do is start with the modern story, and the modern version to get us thinking about it before we look at what Jesus had to say. And so this is a a parable, um, Act 1. It's called Crying Over Spilled Coffee. Okay, so Justin knew he should have been more careful, especially in a ritzy, upscale restaurant like Alberto's, especially since he had barely enough money with him to pay for the meal. But he was trying to impress his date, and the vases didn't look that fragile. And he had no idea they were 13th century Ming Dynasty in China, whatever that meant. And he was usually pretty good at juggling. But when he missed the handle on the first one, it threw his rhythm off, and all three of them went crashing to the floor. Oops. Everyone for tables around gasped and turned to stare. It's okay, he said, blushing. Nothing to see here. He glanced over at Nikita and tried flashing his winning smile. She didn't look as impressed as he'd hoped. Justin, you just broke their vases, she squealed, and and I don't think they picked those up at a rummage sale. He gulped. This wasn't looking good. Just then the manager arrived. He stood there just staring at the shattered pieces of his priceless vases on the floor. It had taken him a lifetime to earn enough money to buy them. "Um, Sorry about that, said Justin. The manager didn't move. One of the servers leaned over and whispered to Justin, Did you realize that each of those vases cost more than Guatemala's gross national product? But the manager was still silent. Justin realized this was much worse than he had thought. Listen, he said, I've got this really cool comic book collection, and it's all yours for the asking. I'm just not sure how else I can pay you back. Finally, Alberto sighed. You can't pay me back, young man, so I shall not ask you to. Please enjoy the rest of your meal, compliments of the house. Now that was unexpected. All the people who'd gathered around to see what had happened stared in shock. Then they gave the manager a standing ovation. Finally, Justin just sputtered. I don't know what to say. Nikita leaned over and whispered in his ear, Say thanks. Thanks, said Justin. You're welcome, said Alberto. Justin offered a few more times to pay for the vases, knowing that he'd never be able to, but the manager shook his head and smiled and walked away. What a deal. Can you believe that? He forgave me. He even gave us a complimentary meal. Amazing. Nikita said, He is a very generous man. Now, Again, the story is not one you'd imaginally or automatically picture in. Let's take a look at what Jesus had to say in his parable to see what Jesus' story was that the author here was trying to replicate. And as we look at this, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. <clears throat> and I'd like to begin just by looking at the first act. And so follow along as I read what Jesus had to say about this parallel. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master offered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
Now, let's just get a context because, again, some of these are um, so culturally wrapped around the first century that Jesus' original audience would have immediately recognized it and made sense of it, but to us it doesn't um, resonate. Um, we don't think of recovering debts by way of debtor's prison. Um, you see some of those in some of the um, English times later in 18th and 19th century, but especially here, if your debt got so large you couldn't pay it back, they could put you in prison to then force the family to recover all of the payment and those kind of things. And to them, that would have seemed natural for a debt so large. And, and this is the, the piece here that's hard for us to understand if we don't understand their currency, when it says that he owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, we're immediately assuming that this must be a large amount of money. Um, but we really don't have, in fact, it was the largest, um, the talent was the largest uh, monetary currency that they had. Okay, let's get comp point of comparison. Herod, who was the ruler of Israel at the time, uh, on an annual basis gathered revenue from all of his provinces. Every year, Herod gathered some 900 talents from the entire nation of Israel. Okay, his debt is about 11 times the national gross product of the nation at that time. Okay, now run those numbers for what that debt would be like for you today if you took the national income for the United States and multiplied it by 10 or 11 times. Okay. This is not a situation where someone's walked by casually, walked into a bank and said, I need a small loan. Okay, this is someone who had a massive debt that it was clear it would be impossible for him to ever repay. And, and part of that is beginning to recognize that for this person to be in this situation, he had to have had a close relationship with the master. Okay, get the connection. You, you, you can't have someone who has a debt this large if he wasn't close enough to be fully trusted by the master. If the master couldn't have released this servant to use his business, to, to use his goods, and when he then accumulated this debt, you know what's happening? This is front page news. Everybody knew the damage he'd done to the business. Everybody knew the way the embezzlement had happened. Everybody knew the business failure. And so it's a public scandal with great embarrassment to the master and a debt that was so massive there was no hope, no possibility of this person ever repaying it. And yet, what does he say? Just have patience and I'll pay you back everything. Still seeming to get around not recognizing this debt that he could never repay. Think for just a minute about some of these lessons from forgiveness that we pick up from this part of the story. Um, obviously, here the debt is massive, something that could never be repaid. And this relationship with the master has stood out to me as I reflected on this parable. Um, Jesus obviously is telling a parable about forgiveness and trying to get us to picture ourselves as the one who have this debt we can't repay. And as you think about that, to have God himself create people like you and me to be his imagers and live on this earth to represent him, to honor him, to point people to him who then turn their backs and use their resources for themselves, who turn their back on God and sin and embarrass him and publicly lead people away from him because of the way we misrepresent him, to have made other things idols instead of God. Think about the sin against an infinite, perfect, holy God and how that has created an infinite debt that could never be repaid. Think also then that because of this, and as I've just alluded to, there's nothing we can ever do to pay this back. There's nothing we can ever do to make it right. Which means then, when there is forgiveness, it's an incredible act of mercy and an incredible act of grace. Um, listen, I've grown up in the church. I've heard this story my whole life. 
I find, to be honest, if some of you are in the same situation, the danger is that we almost become numb to it. And, and what happens is we begin to live with some misperceptions of what's taken place in this process. Um, I heard one person as he was speaking explain this in ways that were really helpful to me. He said, what we tend to do is underestimate our badness, and we tend to overestimate our goodness. And we determine that by comparing ourselves to each other instead of to God. Uh, let me just unpack that for a minute. We underestimate our badness. It's the statement of, well, I've never done this, and I haven't gone this far, and look at all the things I haven't done. And then we overestimate our goodness. Well, look how often I do this and how much I'm volunteering and how much I'm trying here and look at the progress I've made. And so we tend to look at other people and think, well, I'm not as bad as them and I haven't done this and look at the trouble they're in and I can't believe they're doing this. And so we, over time, begin to believe that our debt is smaller than really it is. In fact, much, much smaller. Um, if, if it helps to get this, um, there were a few years where I played golf um, I was never really good. I was a hacker. I played with some people who were good golfers, and I just couldn't break that barrier. It would have cost too much money and lessons and other stuff, and I finally gave up, to be honest. But in the middle of that, I had this image of myself as a golfer. And you know what I learned I had to avoid? Is that my image of myself as a golfer was the collection of the best shots I've ever made. Okay, I can take you to hole five in Milwaukee at a course I played where I rolled the ball within two feet of the pin and got a, a birdie. Um, one par three course I played, I actually had two birdies that day, dropped the ball within 18 inches, inches of the hole both times. Um, I can picture the one great drive I had. <laughs> one, okay? Now, I played for several years. My collection of shots is this one and this one and this one. And then you know what I had to get over mentally? I'd get out on the course, and when I'd hit the ball and it didn't go like that, I'd go, I can't believe I missed that shot. You know what I should have been saying? That's normal missing that shot. <laughs> when I hit the good shot, I could be, should be saying, I can't believe I hit that good shot. <laughs> what do we do? We build this collection of our very best moments. And then when something goes wrong, we go, oh, that's really out of character. That's not me. I can't believe I did that. Instead of going, no, the pattern is the pride. The pattern is the way I tend to be selfish. The pattern is the way, and so when I do anything different than that, that's really out of character. And this is the idea that we tend to underestimate really how dangerous and terrible and bad our sin is and overestimate our goodness, and we often do this by comparison. Um, I, I chuckle when I heard that person trying to compare he, as he was talking to someone about the gospel. And as they talked through this idea of comparison, they, say, uh, you know, they were saying, well, they live a pretty good life, and they go to church, and they do these things for God, and so they're pretty good, and they don't see themselves as being a really terrible sinner. And he would basically say, okay, let's just put a scale like this, okay? And who would you think would be the worst people in history you could ever think of, the greatest evil? And, of course, everybody immediately wants to mention Hitler and serial murders, and go, okay, let's put them down here. And who would be the, the most righteous, honorable, good people you would ever think of? And they'd start naming Mother Teresa and Billy Graham or Luis Palau, go through the list of these people. And, and it's funny because he'd then look at them and go, and where would you put yourself on the scale? You know, and of course, we're not going to put ourselves down here. But then when you start looking at people who have really devoted their lives to Christ in such significant ways, and you go, oh yeah, I'm nowhere near them. And then when you listen to those people who talk about their own past and the sins they continue to struggle with, and we say, let's compare even them to Jesus Christ as the perfect standard. 
becomes the caution for all of us that we can begin to take our sinfulness for granted and lose sight of this amazing gift freely given of forgiveness that could never be repaid. And for you and me, it's not 10,000 talents, and it's probably not the vases that we broke at a restaurant, but it is the patterns of addiction that have had our whole lives. It's the pattern of pride. It's the struggle with lust. It's the way we struggle to forgive other people. It's the desire to be first. It's the, the holding back when we know we should be serving and giving others. And we can go on and on and on with the list. We tend to overlook that. Um, and as a result, we tend to minimize the grace and the mercy of God when he freely forgives the debt through Jesus Christ and says your debt is forgiven. You can't repay. You don't have to. It's forgiven. Now, it's an amazing story, and even one that we've echoed again as we've had the Lord's table together. But that's only the first part of the story. Listen to the rest of the parable. But when the same servant, this one who had this debt of 10,000 talents, went out, um, he found that one of his fellow servants, one, excuse me, one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, we need to stop for just a minute because, again, most of us don't have any denarii in our wallet, so we have a hard time figuring out what that would be like. Um, a denarii was a day's wages, kind of a standard wage for one day. So let's just run the calculations. If you have 100 denarii and you figure a six-day work week, you're talking about 16, 16 and a half weeks, so you're talking about four months' wages. Okay, if you take an average income today of somewhere in the forty-five dollars to $50,000 range, kind of a median income, four months' salary would be how much? I'm pausing, forcing you to do your math to be sure your mind's engaged and waking up. You know, about a third of $50,000, $18,000. So it's not a small, it's not like he borrowed, you know, a buck to go buy a soda, but it's, honestly, that $16,000 debt is smaller than car loans, significantly smaller than house loans. Many students would love to have that small of a debt, to be honest. So there's a debt here, but the debt is small and manageable, something that could be paid off. Now, keep sight of what Jesus is doing here. The man who had the debt of 10,000 talents, 10 or 11 times the national income on an annual basis, who had just been forgiven of the debt, now walks out the door and immediately on the heels of this sees someone who owes him fifteen or $18,000. And his immediate response is to grab him and choke him and tell him to pay him what he owes. This person now is begging for mercy. Have patience with me, in verse 29, and I will forgive you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant if I, as I have had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, in this story, it's always interesting because sometimes in a story you see a positive example, okay? Sometimes you see a negative example. And here's obviously the anti-type, the anti-hero, the person doing the exact opposite of what he's supposed to be doing. And through that, he teaches us some lessons, one, genuine forgiveness humbles. To anyone who has truly been forgiven, it leaves you with the recognition that you could never have paid it back. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. 
Can you imagine this person walking out having just been forgiven of 10,000 talents and not walking out going, I can't believe how good and generous he was to me. Instead, walking out with the arrogance that he's ready to push someone else to give them back the money they have, obviously still thinking about what he deserves, obviously thinking of what he wants. Um, Listen, we tend to live in ways where we really want mercy ourselves, but we really want to demand justice of others. The one who has been forgiven is humbled enough to realize that they've received mercy and they're so anxious then to see others receive mercy as well. He instead goes out saying, this isn't fair. You owe me. This is what I deserve. Um, Genuine forgiveness humbles us to remind us, to teach us what we cannot pay ourselves and the grace of God and what he's done in forgiveness. But clearly in this parable, genuine forgiveness leads to forgiveness. The one who has really been forgiven is so changed by that that they can't do anything but turn around and want others to receive the same forgiveness. And in the middle of this, there's then the warning. And, and, and watch how this happens. The, the passage right before this parable, Jesus has said, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother and work it out so there's healing and reconciliation. And Peter then responds after that and says, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now picture, Peter thinks he's being really generous. Okay? The standard in that day was more like three times was being really good. And so Peter hears, if someone sinned against you, work it out with them. Peter goes, all right, now let's think about this. How many times do I have to do this? And Peter, thinking he's being very generous and far above the standard, goes like up to seven times. And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, commentators will talk about this being the combination of the numbers of wholeness and completeness and the sevens and the tens and things. And and in their day, I think this was a figure of speech that would have been like you having a child who says, how long do I have to do this? And you're like, forever, (laughs) you know? How many times? Infinite plus one. You know, whatever the category is you want. Jesus is not saying here, okay, keep track. And when you reach 77, you're in good shape. Um, Others would actually translate this as 70 times seven. He's saying, what a stupid question. If you've been forgiven of a debt that's infinite, that you could never repay yourself, what a stupid question to say, so how many times do I have to forgive them? You say, when you ask that, you're missing the whole point. Why? Because genuine forgiveness humbles. Genuine forgiveness leads to forgiveness of others. And this is the front end of the bookend, okay? It starts by Peter asking this question, and then the parable itself ends on the bottom in verse 35 by saying, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Um, Listen to how James says it in James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. This, and I used the phrase before, but I can't help but use it again. We tend to want mercy and generosity and kindness to us, but we tend to look at others and want fairness and justice. And Jesus is saying, what a stupid question to ask, do I need to extend forgiveness? And how many times? Why? Because the one who has been truly forgiven 
they can't think of anything else but being humbled by their forgiveness and then turning and wanting to extend that to others, to echo that forgiveness in their lives to the people around them. Listen, if you will, to the rest of the modern story. We're back in the restaurant with Justin and Nikita. They ordered their meal and sipped their water and watched as a crew of servers efficiently swept up the broken vases and deposited them into the garbage can. A few minutes later, their food arrived. But just then, as Justin was about to dig in, the maitre d' turned too quickly, and the platter of roast duck he was carrying on his shoulders tilted slightly, and a cup of warm coffee tipped off. It teetered there on the edge for a moment, just like in the cartoons when someone runs off a cliff and then lingers there in midair, kicking his feet. Then it fell through the air and landed right in Justin's lap. You could have heard a scream from the other side of the restaurant. He didn't scream because it was too hot, just because it was so wet. What are you doing, you imbecile, you moron? What have you done? Justin leapt to his feet and brushed at his jeans. There was a large circle of brown liquid on his right thigh. I'm sorry, sir. It was a mistake. I'm so sorry, sputtered the maitre d'. Mistake, my foot. You've ruined a perfectly good pair of jeans. This is coming out of your paycheck. But, sir, don't talk back to me, screamed Justin, grabbing the maitre d' by the throat. You spilled coffee on my jeans, and he shook the man so violently that it looked like the poor, heads follow, just, or poor fellow's head might just fly off. It took two retired bankers and a lady wearing a mink coat who knew karate to free the maitre d' from Justin's grip. <laughs> well, of course, some of the people watching were the same ones who'd been there for the vase incident. They called for help, and once again, Alberto arrived, this time flanked by several police officers. What's going on here, he asked. This stupid waiter spilled coffee on my pants, yelled Justin. They cost me $20 at Walmart. Alberto looked at the coffee stain. I see, I think I'm beginning to understand. Good, then you'll fire this waiter and pay for these jeans to be dry cleaned, hollered Justin. No, I won't, replied Alberto. What? Officers, this man owes me some money, as well as a comic book collection. He broke three of my priceless vases earlier this evening. Uh Uh-oh. What are you doing, asked Justin. I thought you said you weren't going to make me pay. Alberto just smiled. I changed my mind. And as they dragged Justin away, the maitre d' straightened his collar and went back to work. And the people applauded for Alberto once again. Now, as you listen to this story, and as you listen to Jesus' story, and the attempt here to kind of recapture it in today, your story doesn't sound exactly like either one, right? Nor does mine. Um, It doesn't sound like 10,000 talents or this major financial debt. It doesn't sound like Ming Dynasty vases or pairs of blue jeans. What does it sound like? Instead, if Jesus was telling our story, would he talk about the one who had forgiven of pride that couldn't be released, that consistently led to selfishness, and yet now you were so angry at the person who forgot an appointment that they were supposed to be with you? Is it the anger that you just can't let go of for ways you've been wronged, but you can't let go of the fact that this person left you out of a special event that you wanted to be a part of? Is it you dealing with your own selfishness and yet all you can think of is what they did to your car in that accident? Is it your sense of idolatry with the things you put ahead of God, and yet all you can think of is the way they embarrassed you in public? Is it you dealing with lust in an ongoing way that you struggle to let go of, and yet all you can think of is how they didn't give you an honor that you wanted or didn't promote you when you thought you deserved it? We know that we are the characters being talked about here, right? And the debt we owe, the debt 
um, is something that is infinite against an infinite God that we can never repay for our sin. And the call here then is to be ones who echo God's mercy to those who have truly been forgiven. And I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're looking at this going, I've never experienced this kind of forgiveness. And it's just here in this story in Act 1 is the promise, the, the truth, the reality. None of us can pay the debt of sin that we owe. And it honestly, for all of us, puts us in a situation where we deserve eternal punishment, hell, as payment for our sins. But God Himself stepped in and forgave. How? By the death of Jesus Christ, a substitute for us so that we could receive forgiveness for our sins. And today that hope is for anyone here who's never had that experience of true forgiveness, of always trying to live up, of always trying to be good enough, of consistently comparing to others to justify when it just will never, ever pay this infinite debt. That hope is there for all of forgiveness. But for those of us who have been forgiven, there's a real warning here not to become numb to that and callous and insensitive and, and ignore the significance of what's happened so that it keeps us from forgiving others, but instead the challenge that we should truly be ones who echo God's forgiveness in our lives by the way we forgive others. Um, listen, I don't want to minimize the fact that I know some in this room have very serious ways they've been wronged or hurt or damaged by other people. I'm not trying to make forgiveness trite and simple and easy, but I think according to Jesus, we have to put that in comparison to what God has done to forgive us. Um, I was humbled listening to a, a missionary who was home a few years ago in, in chapel when Gracie Burnham talked about having been imprisoned um, in the Philippines with her husband for almost a year, having been captured by guerrillas at that point, and in the gunfire when she was freed, her husband was killed. And to me, I, I would think about what it would be like to be in that situation, but then to hear her story of now going back to the prison and reaching out to those men to share the gospel with them and seek for them to find forgiveness. And honestly, it put a lot of the things in perspective that I tend to get upset about, the things that I can't let go, the way I tend to want to treat people with justice instead of with mercy as I've received from God. Um, hopefully it's a help for all of us. And I would just challenge you this week um, if you're like me, as I've reflected on these things and tried to bring these things up, you probably right about now have someone who's come to mind. It's the situation at work. It's the situation with your neighbor. It's the extended family member or a close family member. Conversations are tense. You're having a hard time letting go. Let me just encourage you this week to go ahead and write down their name just for you and your quiet time and spend about 15 to 20 minutes a day and start by thanking God for the forgiveness you've received. Uh, be bold enough to write out a confession of the sins that you know are in your life and thanking God for the way you've been forgiven. And then spend the next five or ten minutes praying for that person you're having a hard time forgiving. And I think here it's the reminder of what Jesus has told us, that as a one who has truly received this genuine forgiveness for God, it echoes in their lives with others. And I think if we all would take the time each day to focus on the cross, and the forgiveness we've received, and then think about that situation and pray for the other situation. It may be a way for us to, to be the living echoes of forgiveness in the world around us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are humbled by the forgiveness you have extended to us in the cross. We know it is undeserved. We are so thankful for the mercy that you have extended to us in Jesus. 
And Father, for those of us who have found that forgiveness, we ask your forgiveness for the ways we have forgotten it and acted in ways that are so inconsistent. Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ personally, I ask that you would prompt and work in their hearts and help them see the hope of forgiveness that can come in him. And for those of us who have, please allow us to be the echoes of forgiveness. May our heart echo the mercy that we've received. May our words echo your generosity and goodness to us. May our actions echo the way you have freed us from sin. May the world around us, the people who see us, hear the echoes of your forgiveness in the way that we forgive and live with peace. And we're grateful for this message of hope and of goodness as we pray it all in the name of our Savior who gave his life for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.